Across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello, mate. How are you doing? I'm all right. It's been a while, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I think it was Christmas I was last here. Was it Christmas? Yeah, was yeah. It? We're feeling festive. <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of good food here. You've got jams and pickles and preserves and meats and beer and all kinds of things. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm going to have a feast now. God, Allah, Buddha, bless Mill Road. Mill Road is awesome. You could taste chocolate forever. Yeah. Like, really good chocolate. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty wonderful. Gingerbread men of all shapes and sizes. Whoa, that's fizzy. Yeah, that, that <laughs> takes your head off. And the food is great, and the wine is obviously fantastic. Doesn't that look lovely? We had music all day. I did pancakes all day. Holly and um, Tiny Robins. At the end of the night, we all eat together with the staff. I love this place. It's unique in Cambridge. You've got people and you've got food and that's all you need and conversation springs forth. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Christmas edition of Flavour with local food and drink news and stories. we got the full team today of Alan Alder, Sue Bailey and me, Matt Bentman. And here's what's coming up. Yes, I'm focusing on Christmas. Fancy that. And with some very well-known Christmas, or Cambridge rather, voices telling us what they'll be eating on the big day. And also some well-known Cambridge voices advising us what will be good to drink on the big day. Yeah, and Sue, our very own food historian, will be telling us how what we eat at Christmas has changed through the years. We'll also look ahead to next year and what good things are in store for us then. And we've our roundup of food and drink news and a jobs roundup at the end of the programme. So let's begin by asking Tim Hayward, co-owner of Fitzbillies and restaurant reviewer and food writer at the Financial Times, what he'll be eating on Christmas Day. What do I like for Christmas dinner? God, that's an interesting one. So for years and years and years, I've been really sort of controlling about it. And uh, I would make a huge fuss about what I had. And a few years ago, I, I, I came out of hospital um, after COVID straight into Christmas. Uh, and I, I, I couldn't even stand up long enough to cook. And my daughter cooked Christmas dinner and she did it so well that she's done it ever since. And it's a bizarre, I mean, she's, she's 20 years old now. She's at, uh, she's at university, she's learning to be an engineer. And so she's, she's got a brilliant mind for the organization of Christmas dinner. But at the moment I've got on the wall uh, behind me on the whiteboard, I've got a huge spreadsheet she's done with all of the details of what's going to be in the Christmas dinner. And who's going to have what to make it most agreeable to the maximum number of people? Uh, and I, I'd rather like the way she does that. It's a, it's, it's, and I can just sit back and uh, and drink uh, Bailey's until I'm sick, and it's terrific. Um, there are some interesting sort of familial conflicts. I think I would probably do what my family always used to do, which was have a big joint of roast beef and a big bird of some sort. Um, Alison, my wife, is generally of the belief that it's absolutely a sin against God to have two proteins on the table at once. And you absolutely can't do that. It must be a bird. So um, that narrows it down because of course, obviously one doesn't have turkey. Uh, I did goose once, charming, but just not a lot of meat and a lot of fat. Very delicious, but it's a bit of a stunt thing. Uh, I'm very, very tempted to try and get Lib to do duck this year because duck is looking like an amazingly sustainable uh, and sort of delicious kind of meat. I think if you get away from the notion of cooking it red rare, which is what the English seem to be obsessed with, and you actually start to treat it a bit more like a shoulder of pork or lamb that needs to be cooked for quite a long time at quite a low temperature. 
you're effectively thinking as a whole bird with the same kind of taste and texture and qualities as good confit duck legs. And suddenly it's a lovely, lovely thing. Might have to have two birds for six people, but you know, that's, that's the doable. Um, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave it to the boss. I'm gonna let her get on with it. I'm gonna get Liberty, do the cooking uh, and it will be lovely. I remember quite a number of years ago, you wrote a piece probably in the Financial Times about preparing the gravy I'm beginning, oh. I think, in in June. Uh, do you still That's do that? Uh, it, it goes a little later now. Uh, it tends to it tends to happen when sort of the game starts appearing. Being in Cambridge and being a foodie, you often get given game that people have shot, and that's fine. Uh, you know, one cooks bits of it, but there's a fair amount of good strong meat and carcasses floating about too. So I t- that tends to remind me to start making a stock. So I start curating stock at that point. So it's usually on a light game stock. Uh, and then I'll do something with some beef at some point later on in the year, and that will go in. Um, and by that point, it's starting to get strong and good. Uh, I make demi glass, which is a kind of a heavy reduction of uh, of stock. It's almost it's almost like black jelly, and you can scoop that out into gravies and test it as you go along. And then finally, you're left with something so complex and beautiful uh, at the very end uh, that it just you know you add the the juices of whatever it is you're roasting to it at the last minute, whip it in, and uh, it's lovely. Uh, it's, I, think, I think my daughter was about six when I first asked her what she wanted for Christmas dinner. And she said, Dad, I don't care as long as we've got roast potatoes and gravy and there's sprouts. And I think as long as that, that, that was probably the, the brightest thing I've ever heard her say. And uh, I, I realised at that point, it's a funny thing, isn't it, with kids? She's a really, really, really good cook, probably a better cook than me. But she's never, ever, ever done a single damn thing I've told her. She absolutely rejects being told what to do in any respect by anybody. Uh, and consequently, um, I don't know how she's got to be a good cook because it isn't from me. <laughs> <laughs> and what about, what about dessert? Are you a Christmas pudding eater or mince pies or trifle? Or... But, it's, you know, but, but there's so many good things. and There's so many good variations going on on the table. And there's always a sense of uh, unabashed greed about Christmas. There should be. I think if you really set to the main course with a will, you're going to be pretty lucky to get even get near the cheese course, let alone through it and into the, frankly, pretty awful Christmas desserts. I don't know. I, can't, I mean, people say, oh, don't do an eaten mess. <laughs> Honestly, if you've really slammed at it and you've done it properly, you don't get off the savouries. Maybe you sit groaning backwards and say, should we have something like some pork or something that's a bit sweet and nice and spend the rest of the afternoon doing that. I did work in a diner in the US and somebody sent me a Christmas pudding out there uh, and it was okay, but it was better when I took it in the following day and the grill chef cut it into slices horizontally, fried each disc on the grill in butter and then melted burger cheese over the top of it. That was a, a really, really good thing to do with a Christmas pudding. Take it to Tennessee. Right, I've I've had it fried in butter, which I think is delicious. So that, you know, oh, it has a really nice crisp outside. I've not tried cheese on it as well, though. But uh, this year, everybody will be doing it in their air fryer, and so good, good luck. <laughs> That's fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Thanks to Tim Hayward, and Tim will be back later on in the program to talk about his forthcoming book. Yeah, but I must say, I agree wholeheartedly with what Tim had to say about the cooking of the duck. It does need to be cooked well. Do you eat much duck, Sue? 
not a great deal, but in fact, I really do like it. And that's what we're going to be having on Christmas Day because there's just going to be a small number of us. And I'll tell you the reason why later. <laughs> right, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tim's told us what he's having. Now here's a vox pop from people from the market telling us about what's going to be on their table. <laughs> Poulet fusé, it's my favourite. I'll be having beef and cockerel for Christmas dinner. None of us like turkey and a chicken isn't big enough, so a cockerel goes down quite well. It's a little bit richer than chicken, but like I said, it's a bigger bird. For my Christmas dinner, I normally have pork, turkey, homemade sausage meat stuffing, parsnips and all the veg, and then obviously in the morning, the next day on Boxing Day, some bubble and squeak. So it's like the traditional in Lithuania to have like 12 dishes with different salads, with the fish one, with the bread, some drinks as well. So basically before the Christmas, let's say one or two days, we don't need the meat. And when is the Christmas coming, so we're allowed to meet. Yeah. It will be something white and fizzy for Christmas dinner and red in the, after in the evening and afternoon, yeah. We're going to my parents yeah. and they're doing turkey, roast potatoes, red cabbage, pigs in blankets, stuffing, the classics, and bread sauce, cranberry sauce, Brussels sprouts. Um, for a Christmas dinner, we serve as a Polish tradition fish carp. I'm from Venezuela. For the Christmas, we made traditional pork with raisins, wine, and it's so good. And we made uh, the bread with jam, with raisins. Our food is really, really tasty because we made with exciting ingredients like coriander, onion, like garlic. The traditional turkey, sprouts and roast potatoes, hopefully, yeah. Everybody seems to buy the traditional things even if they don't like them, which is bizarre. I have people come up here and say, uh, we'll have some sprouts. We don't like them, but we'll have some because it's traditional. I'm from Taiwan and in my countries we don't celebrate Christmas. So normally we just like having dinner as usual. <laughs> we are going to have turkey, lots of mezes with our family all together. Our culture is influenced by Western countries a lot. So nowadays in Taiwan, we will have a lot of Christmas stuff like decorations. People will hang out together, but it's still not like a big festival during a whole year. Uh, we're Venezuelan of origin, so for Christmas we have uh, pretty unconventional dishes. We have ajacas, which is like, um, I don't actually don't know how to describe it, but they're nice. Um, and we also have a ham bread, which is like a, like a very nice pastry. And then now that my sister and I have been in England for so long, we combine it with an English breakfast and have a weird amalgamation of it, yeah. Hi, uh, good afternoon. My name is John. I'm from uh, Romania. And for Christmas dinner, I have like a uh, sarmale. It's uh, like uh, pork mince with rice and uh, cabbage. The cabbage, before to do that, it needs to stay in uh, water and salt for a couple of months. And can put it in the oven for two hours. And after with uh, milk cream on top, it's absolutely delicious. Definitely. <laughs>
You know, it's kind of interesting what Tim Hayward said about the Christmas pudding, uh, cutting it in slices, frying it in butter and melting the burger cheese over it because the lady I was recording with, she was telling me how she prefers her Brussels sprouts when you parboil them and then fry them with butter, which is something I've never done before. And then she fries the sprouts with a bit of bacon so they don't go too soggy. Mm. Well, in fact, if you look back at the early historical recipes for cooking Brussels sprouts of the 18th and 19th centuries, exactly what they did, brown butter, mm. and serve them with fried brown butter. Oh, didn't know so that. So go back to what one should be doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, some people do say you should keep sprouts away from water. And steaming them is a good idea, and I've had them roasted recently yes, and deep-fried. I've, I've roasted them. Gosh, I've not thought of that, but yeah. <laughs> but sprouts are different, aren't they, now, from what I remember as a child, you know, because they, they used to are. be quite sulphurous, didn't they? Oh, you know, yes. If you ever cooked yes. them, they were quite unpleasant. Yes. In fact, if you listen on Christmas Day, there'll be the Woman's Hour Christmas special, <laughs> and I'm talking about the history of sprouts. And in oh, fact, really? There are some very good sprout specialists on there. Oh, and yeah, really? the sprouts are, have actually now been bred to be much less sulphurous. Yeah, well, good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm free. And now details of free food available in and around Cambridge and the information about what's available and where to get it comes from the Olio app. And that exists so the people's or businesses' surplus food doesn't go to waste. Yeah, and today's look at Olio for Cambridge shows us that uh, actually there's not really very much at all. It's the quietest I've ever seen it. But... I'm putting this down to the weekend and the fact that it's almost Christmas because we've had plenty of good weekends here, but it's so much more lively during the week. I tested it this week. I picked up a few things from Olio myself. Really good during those times, just not right now. Right, OK, so I don't know whether the other app, Too Good To Go, is in a similar position, but that sells unsold food from restaurants and shops, often at less than half price. They don't tell you what you're going to get. It's just put in a magic bag ready for you to take home. And again, that's instead of it being thrown away at the end of the day's trading. And it's such a good idea. Well, mm. now let's hear from some other local food and drink people. Steve Thompson, the foraging chef, Chong Chong Bo from Amphora, and Hanoi from Luk Thai in Melbourne Place. My favourite thing to have for Christmas dinner is a lovely glazed ham. So this year we're glazing it in rosehip syrup and covering it in cracked Alexander seeds. It's just comfort food, really. Are you having a special Christmas dinner? I'm wondering what you like to eat. Ooh, uh, I like to eat oysters. <laughs> I love oysters. And what better time to eat oysters than at a time of celebration? It may be a cliche, but one of the best food and wine pairings has got to be oysters and champagne. And I've tried oysters with muscadet, with acertico, with semillon, with lots of other, other wines, and nothing comes close to champagne with oysters. So I'll be having oysters, perhaps some lobsters and caviar after that, depending on whether I can get them in time. <laughs> What would you be having for Christmas Day lunch, Noi? Because I know, obviously, you're a Buddhist, but it's fun to celebrate Christmas. So what are you going to be having for Christmas Day lunch? Turkey. <laughs> and do you like turkey? Of course. Yeah. On my butt, I've been here nearly 33 years. I'm going to talk to one of the Luktai chefs as well. And what's your comments on Christmas Day meals? Well, we normally have turkey as well. Sometimes I join with family, 
and sometimes, of course, join with the owner of the business, like Noi. Yeah, yes. exactly. And, and is that for everything? Having Brussels sprouts and roast potatoes and everything yes, English yes. Christmas. Yes, of course. Yes, we do. We do have that as well. And I would say that the rosehip syrup that Steve Thompson is having was featured on our last program. If you want to make it, it really is fantastic and easy to make as well. Catch it on the podcast if you haven't heard the podcast yet. Yeah, and something else sort of following that up, when I was talking to Chong about what she likes to eat at Christmas, she was saying how very much she likes the Chinese supermarket by the sorting office on the, the Clifton Road Industrial Estate. It has fantastic seafood such as live lobsters, live scallops and superb oysters. OK, on to our first news break of the day, Saturday the 16th of December. And let's begin in Congratulations Corner, where we meet B. Wilson, whose book The Secret of Cooking has had a lot of recommendations as one of the best food books of the year. And last weekend, the list grew further as it was recommended by Rachel Roddy of The Guardian newspaper. So many congratulations to B. And Harden's best restaurant list for 2024 was released on Wednesday. And up there at 73 is Vandalile. And it's beating such iconic names as Pollen Street Social. And at number 23 is Restaurant 22. And at number 9 is Midsummer House. Massive congratulations to all three Cambridge people. Today until 2pm, Finn Boys are at the Gog Magog Farm Shop. And they are there every Saturday from 11am till 2pm, selling hot fish soup, garlic prawns, sashimi, oysters and plenty of other delights. And there's a Finboy's festive hamper available to order. Prawn toast, smoked salmon, taramasalata, fish soup, black butter, oysters, potted crayfish. You can order it online. And Great Britannia can accommodate up to 20 guests at their new shop in Mitcham's Corner. And we featured this on our last programme. It offers a range of local foods, including cheese boards and cured meats and seafood, along with a selection of more than 200 English and Welsh wines. And there's a 10% reduction on now for lunchtime groups of six or more. Steak and Honour has launched its Christmas burger, the Michael Dublé, available in its Wheeler Street shop from its fans. Tomorrow in North Stowe there is a Christmas market with food as well as craft stalls. The food stalls include Cambridge Luxury Bakes, fresh fruit, vegetables and eggs from Poundsworth, Urban Chai, selling Indian food, snacks and chai, Victoria Rose Artisan Bakery with sourdough bread and pastries, and Heath Gallery, which will be selling olives, nuts and sweets. More news later. Okay, back to Christmas dinners though. We've heard from a few local people about what they're having for their Christmas meal, but uh, what are you two having? Well, we're having turkey and the usual things like roast potatoes. And I must say, I agree with Tim Hayward's daughter on the subject of roast potatoes. They're such a joy. And Mm. particularly if you've got the gravy right, I think she's spot on. Yes, yes. And Uh, what else do you have? Anything else exciting? Oh, well, it's all very exciting. (laughs) Well, you have Christmas pudding. And uh, lots of mince pies, all sorts of things. Mm. What about you? Well, as I said, on actually on Christmas Day, we're just going to have duck because it will just be my husband, my mother and myself. And then we're having not the Christmas Day meal on the 27th, which will be our whole family. And we will have goose as we traditionally oh, do have. Oh, goose is fantastic. And I yeah. love goose. I'm sorry, Tim, I really love goose. Uh, well, he said he did. It's just that there wasn't a lot of meat. No, there isn't. But in fact, if you don't have a large number of people, yeah. then it is perfect. Yeah, I agree with you. I think goose is delicious. It is. But Sue, could you 
talking about obviously Christmas 2023, but if you put your food historian hat on, what's changed about what people eat at Christmas? So has it changed much over the years? It depends how many years you're going back, really. I mean, our sort of traditional Christmas dinner is very much based on the Christmas Carol Victorian dinner of turkey and all the trimmings to go with that. But in fact, if you go back further than that, Christmas pudding was medieval period and Elizabethan period. It was much more like a porridge. And oh, it, really? yeah, yeah, and it had, <laughs> yes, exactly, and How it had very, oh, well, quite, <laughs> and it had lots of spices in it as well. And then only later did it start having the dried fruits in it, and so it's quite a lot different. But of course, one of my favorite things at the moment is the sprout. So, here's a sprout oh. for each of you a sprout, have a sprout. <laughs> is it wrapped up in something? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is, but it looks like a sprout, but I'm peeling back <laughs> silver foil. So it's a chocolate. It is a chocolate sprout. I thought you might enjoy this. This is a well, BBC Radio 4 chocolate sprout, no less. <laughs> well, it's very nice. It's very nice. <laughs> and for those sprout haters, sorry, I love sprouts. <laughs> but I was wondering about the future change because I think, I think Christmas pudding's didn't used to have cherries in now they've that's right they now seem to have cherries in them and there's all sorts of variations on them i must admit i'm not a great christmas pudding eater oh, I, love, I love i love I the love, savories again i'm with tim on that love it. yeah but one of the other things that tim mentioned was he talked about christmas pudding being fried in butter and having melted cheese over it and there is such a trend towards putting melted cheese over things and i think it makes everything too similar <laughs> on the radio on radio 4 very recently they were talking about chips and what you should have with chips and should you have tomato ketchup nice combination and somebody said well the tomato ketchup is okay but melted cheese is what you want on chips and i thought well it's a bit like going towards taste- nachos and everything, everything isn't it? Everything starts yeah. tasting the same. But anyway, that's just no, me. But if you think fruit cake with cheese, that's a classic combination. So why not Christmas pudding? <laughs> so You're I'm not sure, liberal. again, I'm going to be doing a, a Tim on that with a <laughs> burger cheese, but there we are. <laughs> well, whatever people eat, there may well be some leftovers, though, which can be reinvented for Boxing Day. And here is local chef Rosie Sykes in an outdoor recording with some ideas about what to do with leftovers. Rosie, for people who have things left over which they haven't eaten for their Christmas Day dinner, have you got any suggestions about how they could use them perhaps on Boxing Day? Absolutely, Alan. Well, the classic is a pie. That could be anything ranging from, you know, if you've had beef, you could make almost like a cottage pie. If I were you, I'd go with a bit of spice or something, perhaps even a bit Middle Eastern, just to switch it up on Boxing Day. But otherwise, if you've had turkey or ham, a lovely combo is some turkey, some ham, a white sauce of some sort, all your roasted vegetables can go in there, maybe some of your stuffing, a few chestnuts, uh, and then pop a short pastry lid on top or a puff pastry, or if you've got the wherewithal, suet. We always love suet pastry. Um, You can put some of your gravy in there. It's a great cover-all basically Christmas all over again. It sounds very nice. I've never done that. Yeah, it, it works well. It works well. It's, and it's nice if you've got different people coming on Boxing Day. I've been to people's houses and had a Christmas leftover pie and felt very pleased because their Christmas dinner was very different from mine. 
but um, the other thing is a soup that's a great leftover use up so you could do a real classic kind of cream of turkey soup which again is a real catch-all for all your roasted vegetables thicken it with the roasted vegetables start with some onions and things and then add in your roasted vegetables uh, a load of butter some cream probably some brandy and then shred in the meat and the nicest thing to do with that kind of a soup I think is to blend it so it's really smooth and rich Um, and and it kind of is so comforting on boxing day and quite nice and easy really Um, but I personally am planning I'm I'm having beef uh, a jersey sirloin on Christmas day and with my leftovers I'm going to um, cut it shred it quite finely and make a kind of Thai inspired um, hot kind of was it's not really a salad it's a kind of hot beef that you eat inside a lettuce leaf so uh, you fry up the beef and you could add in shredded up leftover roast carrots or parsnips or whatever um, and with it garlic ginger chili Uh, And then when it's all nice and fried up, throw in some fish sauce and some rice vinegar, good squeeze of lime juice. um, And then a lovely handful of chopped herbs, mint, uh, coriander, parsley, whatever you've got. I really would recommend that you always have some coriander about about your house. Um, And then have that in lettuce leaves. That's really delicious. That sounds fantastic. Um, And the other one that... um, is nice for all leftovers is stuffed cabbage leaves so if you've bought your sprouts on a a stem like if you're a morris dancer on the top there'll be lovely leaves often if you save those leaves um, cut out any really hard stems give them a couple of minutes in boiling salted water the leaves not the stems and um, and then make a mixture with your stuffing shred some meat into that chop up your leftover veg all sorts of things just put a blob inside each leaf wrap it all up and put it into a buttered dish with the kind of seam at the bottom Uh, and then if you've got gravy left over I would let it down so it's almost like a thin stock season it all very well put the gravy over so it's just kind of covering the leaves Uh, dot some butter on top and bake that in the oven that is absolutely delicious it kind of goes a little bit crisp on top and there's all these lovely juices for mopping up with bread it's really good um, and not too much work I mean the the rolling up is a bit of work but what I did earlier in the year I, I had a fig tree outside the door where I was working and I'd made these stuffed cabbage leaves and I just laid um, fig leaves on top when I was baking it and the amazing flavor of the fig leaf which is kind of coconutty I can't really explain it's a really amazing flavor um, just permeates and it's lovely and you obviously you don't need to eat the fig leaves but um, they they add a really lovely flavor right and so, are, are baking in the oven for roughly how long uh, about 25 minutes right yeah, so, that sounds good. That is a nice one, definitely. Good. Okay, thanks very much, Rosie, and I hope Pleasure. you do have a good Christmas. And you, Alan, <laughs> thank you. 
Well, that does sound fantastic. Now, should you have any of your goose left over, Sue, what would you do? Well, I tend to make it into a rather nice risotto with some wild mushrooms. Uh, and <laughs> if, if my goose is a bit too big to go into the oven, I always tend to confit the goose legs and just Ooh. deal with the problem by Ooh. taking its legs off and confit them to have later nice. pleasures in right. 2024. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> so you can always ensure your goose is cooked. Indeed it is. <laughs> <laughs> and Rosie Sykes will be back with a new book out soon and she'll also be back in a few minutes to tell us about it. But now we're off on a two-minute break. We will be back with wine recommendations for the big day and looking ahead to some pleasures awaiting us in the new year. Don't go away. Cambridge 105 Radio. Sunday on Cambridge 105 Radio. Former City Council leader Lewis Herbert explores the intricacies of the local planning system. Lewis is joined by planning advisor Peter Studdart and Queen Edith's councillor, Sam Davies. If you look in South Cams, you've got about six layers now of planning activity, none of which is actually that effective. What we see in Cambridge, though, is because of the rate of growth, it feels incessant. And so a kind of systems problem is compounded by a volume problem. Cambridge Challenges, midday Sunday on Cambridge 105 Radio. Listen again at cambridge105.co.uk. Homelessness can happen to anyone. Graham's happy and stable home life was shattered when he experienced a catastrophic mental breakdown. In the grip of his mental illness, he withdrew from friends and family, and his journey into homelessness began. At his lowest point, rough sleeping on the streets of Cambridge, Graham sought help from Winter Comfort. With our support, Graham is now living in his own flat, receiving counselling, and has reconnected with his family. Since the start of the year, Winter Comfort have supported more than 600 people who are experiencing or at risk of homelessness in Cambridge, and demand continues to rise. This Christmas, if you can, please donate online at wintercomfort.org.uk to help us to continue to bring hope to those in desperate need in our community. Thank you so much, and on behalf of everyone at Winter Comfort, Merry Christmas. Tired of long waiting lists to see a dentist? As a private clinic, Dentistry and More can book you an appointment when it's convenient to you. We believe dental physics should be a pleasant experience. Our relaxing and welcoming clinic is in the centre of Trumpington, right next to the Clay Farm Centre and Sainsbury's. Our team comprises highly experienced dental specialists who are dedicated to delivering the highest standard of care using the latest dental equipment to provide efficient and painless treatment. We offer a 10% discount for NHS workers and we have additional hygienist appointments available on Saturdays. Find out more at dentistryandmore.co.uk. Welcome back to Flavour and time for some more news. Yeah, La Pergola in Halton is taking bookings now for Boxing Day lunch. And on New Year's Eve, there's a bottomless dinner at Scott's All Day. And to book, email scott at scottsallday.com. And looking ahead, on January the 26th, the next Italian supper club by Pudini in Willingham takes place. And that costs £50 and you can book now. At the moment, Bushel Box Farm Shop in Willingham has 16 varieties of apple and three varieties of pears. They also have homemade marmalades, Seville, Clementine and Blood Orange. The Norfolk Street Bakery is taking Christmas orders up to tomorrow, Sunday, to be collected up to the 23rd of December. There's lots of specials, including pumpkin donuts, Christmas pudding, 
king's cake, queen's cake and mince pies. And we're going to try these pumpkin donuts a bit later on in the programme. Oh, yummy, so yummy. be prepared. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. And Vandalal has its annual festive hamper, which is available, stocked full of good things. Oris and Sons hot sauce, Vandalal's marmalade and their granola as well, salted caramel, Cotswold gold truffle mayonnaise, caviar seaweed and lots more. They're £85 for the hamper and the collection date is by 23rd of December. More details on the Vandalal website. On now to our brief look ahead to 2024 and what it might bring. Several openings are coming up. Uh, two are in Eddington. Dolcedo Social is opening in January and Harvest, that'll probably be opening in March. In Milton, Coffee World's Cafe is due to open in January and later on the Bald Brothers' third cafe will be opening in Hills Road, near the junction with Station Road. Yeah, and Tristan Welsh is talking about possibly opening up somewhere late next year, but we'll see. There are also some new books from local food writers on the way. In February, Rosie Sykes' new book is due to be published, so I asked her about it. It's due out in February 2024. So I haven't seen a finished copy yet. I think it's still being printed or on its way back from being printed. It's called Every Last Bite. It's very much about the sort of things I've been talking about with you today, using things up and understanding your ingredients and respecting them. And I'm not saying you need to always be making leftovers into different things or whatever. It's more about if you need to buy a bag of carrots because it's more economical than with the ones you're not using in the dish you're using, you could do this with them or that with them. So it's just about learning to make the most of ingredients, really. And a lot of it is pretty quick stuff. And some of it's really slow stuff that you can walk away from. And there's one chapter which is called Blueprints. And the idea with that is that it's that is specifically for leftovers. So, for example, there's a, a recipe in there for stuffed mushrooms. So I give a lot of ideas of different things you can put inside the mushrooms from your leftovers. Or there's a curry in there, which you can do with loads of different things. Yeah, it's all about little hacks with ingredients and time savers and food savers, really. So I'm very excited about it. It's it's really nice, 70 recipes and really beautiful photographs. So watch this space. Hopefully I'm going to start trying to do some cooking from it on uh, little reels and things. It sounds like a book for our times, Rosie. Yeah, I hope so. I really hope so. My constant desire is to help people feel more confident in the kitchen and and not worry about, you know, it's all about feeling confident enough to do your own thing, take recipes and then turn them into your own. And I think a lot of people do do that, but it's inspiring people to keep on doing that, I think, and yeah. not going the other way and buying ready meals. I asked Tim Hayward for a few words about his forthcoming book too. It's a stonker. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's everything you need to know about something. Uh, and it's and it, it you know it's and it's the full the usual you know the folklore the science the history the yeah. the social history uh, some great recipes amazing pictures I got the old band together so it's the same crew uh, shooting and uh, uh, doing the design work and it looks like no book you've ever seen it, it really is very very uh, sort of meta text and things jumping about and things jumping out at you. Uh, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm very proud of it. Very proud. Of it. Like, it's going to be a workout. Wow. Yeah. 
It's not a, <laughs> a pop-up, is this? A pop-up book. You know, it's the one thing they wouldn't let me do was pop-up. <laughs> uh, I, I literally, at one point, there was a design for something that was actually going to jump out of the page at you. But we've done everything else. Right. Um, it's, it's, it is wild and, wild and crazy. I'm looking right, forward to it. I look forward to it enormously. And that is Supercharged with Wine, 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 introducing us to our wine news. And Thorne Wines recommends ordering for national delivery from them by the 18th of December and for free local delivery by the 21st of December. They do do fantastic wines and you're welcome to get in touch with them for recommendations as well. Gutter and Stars has three different wine boxes available, including a six-bottle box, which includes a hitherto unreleased Gutter and Stars wine. Cambridge Wine Merchants has several special Christmas wine cases, including an exotic selection of more unusual wines. And the Wine Rooms has 10% off online orders at the moment, with an additional 10% off for cases of six or more wines. Well, let's move on to some wines for the Christmas meal now. Alan asked Chong Chong Bo of Amphora in Devonshire Road for some guidance on what to drink. Chong Chong Bo has been judged by Decanter magazine to be amongst the top 25 sommeliers in the country, so she's a very good person to ask. And she started with white wine recommendations. I think white wine should also include sparkling wines. Uh, as a general rule, I think you can't go terribly wrong with sparkling wines uh, People may be familiar with my views on Prosecco, but let's say sparkling wines that are traditional method. So carve, that includes Carvo, which is superb value, uh, but also, of course, Champagne, English sparkling, Cremant from France, and other more exotic examples. So sparkling wine tends to be forgiving in terms of wine pairings, so that's, that's going to work with most things. In terms of still white wine, I would either go creamy or off-dry. So creamy and relatively neutral. So if you think of white wine grapes as on a spectrum from aromatic through to neutral, then on the neutral end of the spectrum you'd find grapes such as Chardonnay, which again is probably a classic pairing for Christmas. So Chardonnay is relatively low intensity fruit, but it has plenty of creamy characteristics, especially uh, if it's been matured in oak, for instance. So a classic Chardonnay that's been matured in oak could be a Burgundy, especially a Burgundy from uh, further south, so Macon. Um, it could be a Puy Frise. But then there's so many options beyond Burgundy to look at in terms of Chardonnay. Because so Burgundy, you pay a price, you don't you? You certainly do, because you're paying for the reputation as well as the wine itself. But you have lovely ripe Chardonnays from the south France, from Languedoc, for instance. Continuing the creamy theme, you've got Spain, so you've got White Rioja as a lovely example, which is made from Viura. You could look into the New World and have these lovely Argentine or Chilean uh, Chardonnays, which are relatively undervalued. So for £16, you could get a beautiful organic Chardonnay, which in a blind tasting, no one would would guess that it was under under £20. Uh, these wines are relatively undiscovered, which why, which is why they're they're so well priced. Then in Eastern Europe, there are there's ferment. So ferment uh, people are usually familiar with ferment in the context of Tokai, which is a lusciously sweet wine uh, that's been made from botrytized grapes. But you can get dry ferment, 
and a really good quality dry ferment that spent some time in oak, especially if it's a single vineyard one. I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation, but uh, Mezes Mai is a large single vineyard in Hungary, uh, in the Tokai region, that produces really beautiful dry ferment. Uh, Royal Tokai does one that's matured in oak, and it's I think that would be a superb pairing. Right, a quick recap there. Uh, Chong talked about Chardonnay from France, Argentina and Chile, White Rioja and dry ferment wines from Eastern Europe as well as sparkling wines. Let's move on to reds. Chong, what about red wines with a Christmas dinner? Classically, people would go for a Pinot Noir uh, because it's relatively light in tannins and it's red fruited. I mean, if you're going cranberry sauce, then it it works in in theory. With turkey, with uh, with poultry that isn't game in general, you don't want to. If you're going to go red, you don't want a wine that's too heavy. So. Heaviness is in terms of the body and the fruit profile, but also in terms of the tannin. So that's why Pinot Noir works. As an alternative to Pinot Noir, you might go with Gamay, which is uh, usually in the form of Beaujolais. It's also quite good value, so relative to um, to, to Burgundies, again, let's say, uh, being the classic Pinot Noir, it's good value. Then you might think about wines from the Loire Valley, which tend to be underrated. So Sancerre Rouge, for instance, everyone knows about Sancerre Blanc, but Sancerre Rouge is made of Pinot Noir. So again, that's a very good alternative to a Burgundy for a classic Pinot Noir. Then again, Loire's, uh, Loire wines, you could think about a Cabernet Franc with a bit of age. So uh, a Chinon, for instance, could be a great option. So looking perhaps outside France, um, if you're thinking about Spain, then perhaps our Garnacha, which again is a red-fruited wine that's not excessively tannic and very, very accessible. So a Garnacha from Spain could be a great wine. Also, oh, we're perhaps getting slightly obscure now, but a Cesanese from Italy. So Cesanese I think of as Italy's answer to, to Pinot Noir in a way. Uh, the more fruity style, but Cesanese is light-bodied. It's from, the one I have is from Lazio, which is just outside Rome, and it's got these delicate violet-like uh, perfumes when, when you give it a chance to, to really open up. Did you know that in Piemonte, although Barolo is the king, the most widely grown red grape is actually Barbera? So Barbera is a fantastic grape. I, I almost feel like in Piemonte... Um, Barolo took so long to mature that they needed something to just guzzle in the meantime while they were waiting for this Barolo to be ready and Barbera is it. So Barbera is classically high acid, again making it uh, good for food pairing in general, but it's got low tannins and that makes it very suitable for, for poultry, for turkey. So I'd recommend a Barbera, especially one from Nizza, which is where the best Barbera grapes come from. Right. And what sort of price would you be talking about for Barbera? Uh, for Barbera, if you get... I've got a Barbera Apacimento, uh, which I retail for £16. So it can reasonable. be, yeah. yeah. Um, for people who like something more full-bodied and who don't need, require a perfect pairing, then I go for something very satisfying, like a Montepulciano. A Montepulciano from the Marche, for instance. Again, an underpriced region in Italy. We talked about turkey. Is it much different for, say, goose or duck? Duck is more gamey. 
So I'd say that you could afford to go more full-bodied, but also potentially older. So with duck or red, uh, I'd I'd go for something with a bit of bottle age. People like to drink claret at Christmas time, but look for an appellation that's a little bit um, unknown, like Fronsac. I've got a 2010 Fronsac for £33, which I think is superb value. And with as red wines age they lose some of the fruit but they gain what we call tertiary characteristics such as mushroom earth leather tobacco leaf and these can work beautifully with game with gaminess yeah well some very enticing reds there just to recap they include the Sancerre rouge aged cabernet franc i must say i really like cabernet franc pinot noir which i also really like from burgundy Gamets from Beaujolais, and wines from the Garnacha grape in Spain, Barbara from Piemonte, but there's a lot to choose. If you're not sure what to get, Chong said how keen she is to offer advice, and she may well have some for you to sample before buying. <laughs> There's the music signalling time for news from social media. Yeah, just a couple of uh, Instagram posting. Alex Rushma of Vanderlyle has a reel on Instagram that she's put up recently showing what's in their festive treat box. And Maison Clement has got a reel showing how they're making pan au chocolat and their croissants. So they're very entertaining to watch. Mm. Now, at the Mill Road Winter Fair, we met Crossover Blendery. They're a small beer maker working from a manor farm in Hitchin. They describe their beers as thoroughly modern but made using age-old techniques. Started by friends George and Charlie five years ago, you know, they remind me a lot of our local Calvary brothers and their story. Anyway, let's talk beer. Hi, I'm George, co-founder of Crossover Blendery. We are a beer producer focusing on complex, interesting barrel-aged beers. Barrel-aged? So we age the beer in oak barrels. It's slow fermentation with wild yeast and bacteria, which leads to very complex and intriguing beers. They're spontaneously fermented, meaning we're not pitching in any yeast or bacteria. So the beers will spontaneously ferment in the barrels and then age in the barrels for a very long time. So what's a long time in your book? So a lot of our beers are a blend across years. Most of our beers are actually a blend of a one, two and three year old. So it's been in barrel for one, two and three years. So it's quite hard to put a vintage year on it. So we normally put the year of bottling. It's a bit of a, a weird thing and people question why it's necessary. It's because a lot of these beers, people will buy them each year and they'll age them and then they'll drink them across the ages. So putting on the bottling year is helping the drinkers that like to age them know that, oh, that's a 2022, that's a 2023. And then you can drink them side by side and see what the differences are. Wow. It's very crossover blendery. Crossover blendery, yeah. Hence the name of the company, Crossover Blendery. So we age everything in in oak barrels. They're all neutral French oak, so they're normally fifth or sixth use, and then the winery will get rid of them. Normally because they've extracted all the flavour they can from the the wood. So we normally buy them fifth or sixth use. We call them neutral, so we're not really getting heavy flavour from the barrel. So low oak, low vanilla. These are light 5-6% beers. I think if it gets too oaky, it can ruin the beer. It doesn't have the strength and the robustness of the wine to stand up to oak. Our barrel brokers, they basically all come from Bordeaux and Burgundy. 
and due to that nature of the wild fermentation with wild bacteria and yeast, you get lots of different flavor and complexity. You get acidity from the bacteria, you get flavor from the wood, and then a lot of the beers we make are also made with fresh British fruit. So after the beer's been in barrel for a number of years, we then re-ferment it on fresh British fruit, which will then add, obviously, all the lovely, delicious, complex fruit flavor as well. So what kind of beers do you sell? We make a mixture of unfruited and fruited beers. The unfruited beers are blended across a number of years and they have interesting yeast-driven flavors and acidity from the bacteria. And then we also do fruit beers like sour Morello cherries, which have delicious, rich cherry flavor and an almondy flavor from the stone, and then all the complex base beer underneath. Lots of different flavors then. This is Alto, which is a blend of two and three-year-old parallels, which is hops or dry hop quite heavily with Harlequin. It's a modern British hop. This is with sour Morello cherries. This is blackberry raspberry. This is blackcurrant. This is quince. This is whole bunch Pinot Noir and Plumstone. And this is damson. I think I'll go for Alto. Alto? I like the sound of it. Yeah, sure. the, the cherry's really nice. Sour cherries, it's Morello cherries. I'll take on a creek. And then of the unfruited, Ciro, it's quite light. It's a riff on a German Goza, so sour wheat beer. We finished it with British sea salt and we gave it a little dry hop to give it like a lemony character. It's actually really nice. It's not too funky, but it's, it's really, really easy to drink. It's a good refreshing summer, exactly. summer sort of yeah. The bottles are also corked. Uh, so rather than just capping the beer, we like to have a cork in there just to eliminate any chance of oxygen ingress. When I say age the beers for a long time, we normally do six months to a year before we release them. And then if you were to buy them now and you fancied aging them for a longer period of time, these beers can age for many, many years. So the importance of the cork is actually, you know, is, is quite high for this type of beer. One customer asked whether these beers should be stored on their sides or upright. Yeah, I, mean, I actually store them on their sides. You can store them upright. It's, you know, if you're storing them on the side, it keeps the cork wet so there's no chance of it drying out. The sediment will drop to the bottom, and it means you've got more contact with the dead yeast that's dropped to the bottom of the beer, which is quite important from a flavor perspective, but you, you can stand them up when you're aging them as well. It's, it's a preference thing. And the alcohol volume? So they range from about five and a half to 7%. And most of our fruit beers are about 6%. Can you say a bit more about the, the, the Pinot Noir? Is it uh, like Plumstone. Pinot Noir must or the blood? Yeah, the yeah this is the this one here. So there's a whole bunch of Pinot Noir. It was on fruit for six months, quite a long re-fermentation. The Pinot Noir is grown in Herefordshire. Really lovely strawberry, cherry, blackberry. Uh, it's got some like earthy, like tertiary notes. And then the Plumstone boosts the body, gives it a richness. I'll go for that. Yeah, it sounds really, one? really interesting, yeah. Awesome, thank you so much. Sweet. Here you go. Have you got like a website? Yes, or we can yes if you Google, Google us, lots of beers available online. We can deliver anywhere, so thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, cheers, thank you. Yeah, make a nice Christmas treat, that's. And their website is crossoverblendery.co.uk. As their blurb says, the beers, they actually come in wine bottles, large and small. And they're available in gift packs too, and bundles via their online shop. So that could make a really nice, unique-looking Christmas present. Yeah, right. and something to drink at Christmas. If, yeah, if, nice. <laughs> if, if you don't want the wine. If you, if you brought the wrong one. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. Well, I actually went along and bought a couple of bottles, so I'll try it uh, over Christmas, probably. <laughs> right.
We've got a couple of minutes left and we've got some things to eat, haven't we? We've been mm. to the Norfolk Street Bakery because they're doing some Christmas things. And one of the things they're doing, as we mentioned before, is donuts, pumpkin donuts. So we've got some pumpkin yeah. donuts, which is one of the Christmas treats. We couldn't buy many of the Christmas treats because they need to be ordered. Mm. And they're quite oh. big, things like King's Cake. Oh, fair enough. I'm, I'm really going to find out a bit more about those. Yeah, go right. right anyway, so, if, so let's, let's have a bite. I'm not a great donut fan before we start, oh, by the I way, am. but I'm going to be persuaded, I think. God, they're so moist, aren't they? They're Ooh. fantastic. Mm. Uh, creamy, wow. a little bit of nice pumpkin zing. Mm. Lovely, no pumpkin lovely dough. spices, but a really, really nice flavour. It has got a nice flavour. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know what? I think I could be persuaded. So an acceptable <laughs> I, prefer, I prefer this to a jam filling. Yum, yum. Yeah, mm. what a texture. That's, mm. that's a brilliant... Yeah, well, Perfect Thumbs texture. up to the Norfolk Street oh, yeah. Bakery there. Definitely. Mm. And the other thing that I got from them, because you can't just go in and buy a few pumpkin donuts, can you? <laughs> any self-respect. <laughs> well, they had a chocolate thing on the counter, which I don't think is one of their Christmas specials, but it is chocolate, so, you know. <laughs> Shall we try that? Mm. Yeah. Chocolate thing, yes. Now let's describe <laughs> this. Yeah, they don't call it chocolate thing. <laughs> it's almost like a sort of brownie, but not, squidged down with little bits of biscuit in it. Mm. A bit like a sort of biscuit cake type thing, but... Mm. 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 Refrigerator cake? It's Ooh. got a good texture, because those biscuity mm. things are biscuity, aren't they? Mm, they are. Crunchy. Mm. Mm. And both mm. of these items, mm. they've got a really brilliant smell to them as well. Oh, right. Yeah. Mm. And this has got, it's not overwhelmingly chocolatey and it's neither really plain chocolate or really milk chocolate, mm. it's just a nice mm. chocolatey chocolate. And again, he mm. says talking with his mouthful, <laughs> <laughs> it's got a nice texture. Mm. You know, it's some of these things like brownies, for example, I think sometimes a bit claggy. Yeah, this isn't claggy, actually. It's not claggy. Mm. <laughs> Do you mean like in the same way um, people struggle with getting a good texture for carrot cake? You know, they mm. vary. There's a spectrum yes, they of it, can. isn't there? Yeah. And maybe a little bit similar with this, but mm. this is I've a very never nice... in my life eaten a carrot cake I could possibly criticise in any way. <laughs> oh, fine. No, I'm afraid oh. that I like the topping of a carrot cake. I wonder if one could do an interesting Christmas variant. Oh, there's a thought. <laughs> Say it's healthy. Mm. Right. <laughs> OK, well, we've got just enough time now for one more Vox Pop from the public and what they're having for Christmas dinner. Fox in the snow where do you go to find something you could eat? A vegan wellington with a mushroom walnut and vegan sausage stuffing. Some salad, roast vegetables and a vegan cheese board which I ordered from a local business. Yeah. <laughs> so we have some types of salads. One of them is Olivier with uh, potatoes and chicken and many other vegetables. That is a traditional Christmas and New Year salad. Also Russian dumplings, the best dumplings in the world. Russian pirashki, these are really nice pies filled with meat, vegetables and sweet as well, sweet pies as well. On New Year's and Christmas I would usually have the caviar with bread and butter. Caviar? Yeah, also we love in Eastern Europe honey cake. Honey cake, nice and soft and sweet. I love to have a Christmas dinner. What's your favourite thing about Christmas dinner? I don't know. Edit that one out. Um, very likely we'll mix a combination of some vegetarian, a good mix of varieties. Professor Tim Spector talked about food balancing, so you need a good variety of salads, combined herbs, nuts, 
And what we do is combine that with some bits of chicken, some small bits of organic chicken, combine the two together and come up with that for Christmas dinner. Thank you. Happy New Year. <laughs> We're having traditional goose, as we do every year. And then we've got my mother and father-in-law around, so we're having to cook a little bit of uh, beef as well. <laughs> I'm from Hong Kong, so I will cook a traditional Hong Kong fusion. Maybe steam the meat, rice, cooking rice, and then cooking the mushroom with the fish, steamed fish, like that. So there's another dish very famous and it is uh, difficult to make. It's Russian pork aspic haladets or student. Haladets is a delicacy of jellied meat dish. To cook it, you need to prepare one day before and to keep it in the fridge so it becomes like a jelly that is delicious, one of the best Russian and Eastern European dish for Christmas and New Year. So I'm going to the White Horse in Water Beach for a Christmas dinner. Okay, I think mum's cooking roast beef with roasted vegetables and some gravy. That's all I think. And then we're going to have a nice Christmas pudding at the end for the dessert. Some chocolates and maybe a cheese board as well. Thank you. And some Russian pranyaki. These are cookies. You can have them with a tea on a nice Christmas evening or New Year's. I could name more, but yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Bless you. Thank you. Merry Christmas. <laughs> and there is Booker T and the MGs with green onions taking us into our job section. <laughs> right, uh, a front of house manager is needed at Dolcedo Social in Eddington, which is opening soon. A knowledge of wines and experience as a front of house manager are essential. Email dolcedopatisserie at icloud.com. Mill Road Butchers has a vacancy for a team member and just pop in with your CV. Some jobs in brief now. You can apply on the company's website if you're interested in one or pop in during a quiet time for a chat. And first of all, chefs of all levels are needed at Pint Shop. There's a part-time chef vacancy at The Mitre, a full-time vacancy at Flatiron and a vacancy for a street food chef at Pizza Mondo. Maurizio Dining has vacancies for front of house, bar and pizza making positions. For a trial shift, there's something new. Uh, email info at mauriziodining.com. Vacancies for sous chefs exist at the Waterman and details are on the City Pub Group website and also at the Carpenter's Arms in Great Wilbraham. Finboys has a vacancy for a chef. It's a five-day, 35-hour-a-week position at uh, and there's two locations. For more info, just apply to info at fin-boys.com. And finally, Peterhouse College, Pembroke College, Murray Edwards College, The Cricketers, Soul and Duck and Zatziki are all on the lookout for a chef de partie. All right, and that draws the curtain on flavour for this year. We'll be back on the 13th of January. Have a happy Christmas, everybody, and goodbye. Happy goodbye. Christmas and goodbye.